Good morning to you all. My name is David. It's a pleasure to be able to welcome you to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church this morning, this Remembrance Sunday. We're continuing today to look at um, the book of Ecclesiastes, and our pastor Duncan Ryan will be bringing us a message from chapters 11 and 12 later in the service. This morning's reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9, to chapter 12, verse 14. And I'm reading from the ESV version. If you don't have a Bible um, or another device, you'll find the passage printed just inside the church diary for today. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil.
Well, good morning, and let me add my welcome. Uh, my name is Duncan. I serve as pastor here, and uh, we're delighted to welcome you here and to open up God's Word together. Keep that uh, portion of God's Word open before you. You'll find that helpful. And uh, let me ask you, if you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to your 16-year-old self, and if you're under 16, I'm sorry, you'll have to wait to think about this question another day. If you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to your 16-year-old self, what would it be? I think for most of us, there's a significant part of us that wishes we could do that, don't we? If only I knew then what I know now. Maybe you would tell yourself to stick in at school. Maybe you would tell yourself that school's not as important as you think. Would you tell yourself to read more? To read better? Listen to your parents, they're wiser than you realize? This final part of the book of Ecclesiastes reads a bit like that. Not so much that the, the, the writer of the book goes back in time, but there is a final plea here to take the gathered wisdom contained in this book, a plea particularly to those who are young, to listen carefully to its message and let it change your life. If you've been with us, it's, it's probably felt like a long road that we've walked through this book of Ecclesiastes. I'll confess I'm slightly saddened today that this is the last time for a while that I'll give you my little potted overview of what we've covered so far in Ecclesiastes. But we do need to do that again, particularly if we're going to get the weight of this message, how this book ends. This book of the Bible is chiefly written by someone who identifies himself as the preacher. It was written in ancient Israel some 3,000 years ago, and it records the preacher's search for the meaning of life. And what a search it has been. What has he learned? Well, he's learned that life is short, and he's learned that when life is done, your life is soon forgotten. The key word that he uses, and it appears a few times in our passage again, is that word vanity, or maybe meaningless. And it's the word for vapor. So when he uses that word, he's speaking about something that is only here for a short while, something that you cannot get a hold of, and something that when it's gone, it disappears without a trace. And he knows this. He knows that life is, is of this sort of nature because he's tried everything to try and find some kind of meaning beyond life. Maybe he would find it in, in the arts or in pleasure or in learning or in sex or in work, but none of these things he found could change this great unchangeable truth about life that it's a vapor. There's no gain at the end of it. For all of the effort you might put in, this is where your life will end. It's short, it will end, and it will be forgotten. The key to life, therefore, the preacher has discovered, 
is found in God. Realizing that these limitations that you have in life have been put there by God. This is what life simply is. And so rather than waste your life trying to fight against these God-given limitations, the preacher says, learn to embrace those limitations. Live life as well as you can within the limitations that God has set. Accept that everything you have is a gift from God's hand and that He's given it to you so that you might honor Him with it. Realize, in fact, that everything is in God's hands. The times and seasons of life, these are not things you choose. They come at you, whether you choose them or not. They're in God's hands. And realize that even though there are significant wrongs in this world, things that we should be ready to stand against, remind yourself that the God of perfect justice will one day fix all the wrongs in this world. So you don't have to fix all the wrongs now. There is true joy to be found, the preacher says, in eating, in drinking, in working, in relationships. There's meaning in life found when you share that life and the things God has given you with others. And you do it all for the Lord. The preacher has told us that we need to learn how to accept that there is so much in life, in your life, that you just don't know and that you'll never know. But rest assured, God knows. And God is at work. So boldly live your life for Him. And so when the preacher pulls together his closing words, he has a word for the young. If he could go back in time, this is what he would say to his 16-year-old self. He would say, whatever you do, son, remember your creator. That's those words you find in the first verse of chapter 12 of our reading. He would say, son, remember your creator, whatever you do. He starts, um, um, we're picking up at the end of chapter 11, where we, we began our reading, he starts making that case by speaking to something that we all know to be true. And in fact, many of us only really learn it by bitter experience. He says to the young man, and I should say there's nothing here that would prevent anything that he says being applied to a young woman as well. He says, you're only young once. You're only young once. One of the areas uh, in our world today where this it comes up again and again and again is in the world of sport. I can recall, uh, not quite 20 years ago, I guess, seeing the great Arnold Palmer being interviewed on TV. By this time, he was in his mid-70s, in his mid-70s, still trying, to, trying to, to be competitive and play. And in this interview, he had tears streaming down his face. And here's what he said. He said, 60 years I've been playing tournament golf, and to know that it's really over, that's tough. Coming to terms with the passing of years, the diminishing of powers, was hard for him. 
And perhaps even the assumption he had made as a young man that the competitiveness that he had, the joy that came from that, it would continue forever. Why should this ever stop? And it's part of the condition of being young, isn't it? You can't really picture being anything other than you are right now. There will always be time later to get round to this or to get round to that. Well, here the preacher is pleading, and in fact, the language he uses is language of commanding. He's commanding the young man to make the most of his days of youth. We're going to come back to those commands later and think through what they might mean for us today. But before we do that, we need to see just how the case is built up. Um, We shouldn't be surprised to see the conclusion in verse 10 of chapter 11 that youth and the dawn of life are vanity. They are like a vapor, soon gone. You need to know what's coming, the preacher says. And that is what this remarkable passage in chapter 12 is talking about. Here is the urgency to make the good of your youthful years because Eventually, your youthful years will make way for years of which you will say, verse 1, I have no pleasure in them. What days are those? Well, there's so much imagery in this passage, you couldn't have missed that as Janet read it for us. A succession of images used to get his point across. And as you can imagine with imagery, People differ on on, on what they think this image represents or that, but the broad point of this passage, almost everyone is agreed. The broad point is this, young man, you need to realize that your youthful vigor will one day give way to decline and to death. And the preacher starts this picture by using the sort of language that we find in the Bible usually used to describe the end of the world. Look at verse 2. So, remember your Creator, verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. We're being taken to a scene here where it's as if the, the world, the created world, is being undone. The things God spoke into existence are being dimmed. The light that they gave has been covered. And indeed, the the Bible does tell us that the world, this world that we live in, will not always be here, that there is coming a day when it will be dismantled by God and replaced with a new heavens and a new earth. And you can find this sort of language throughout the Scripture. The prophet Isaiah would say this, all the host, all the stars of heaven shall rot away, the skies roll up like a scroll, all their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine. That day, the way the Bible speaks of it, is not typically a day of comfort. It's spoken of as a day of great terror. And look at how people of every station of life are affected in this picture that the preacher paints for us. Uh, Verse 3, the one who is the keeper of the house. 
what is going on with him? Well, those men tremble. The strong men are hunched over, bent low. The women who grind grain, they have to stop because there's so few of them left. And the one who looks out the window, darkness has come over them. Life has changed. This is, this is not what life is supposed to be like. The doors are shut, verse 4. The sound of birdsong is so rare that you sit up when you hear it. And the sound of, of young girls singing has fallen silent. The tone of life is now very different. You see in verse 5 that those who go through the streets are the mourners, not those singing joyful songs. There is a great fear, verse 5, of what is coming from on high. There is terror at what is in the way or in the roads. And you've got this strange picture. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along. It may be that there's some hints of, of, of the old normal way of life. The almond tree blossoms early in the year. But you see the grasshopper dragging himself along there is something about, about the order of creation is collapsing here. And desire fails. Uh, meaning that the, the human desire for relationships and even specifically the human desire to procreate, that desire collapses and disappears and why is all of this so, all of this terror, all of this mourning, all of this, this dysfunctionality? Because, verse 5, man is going to his eternal home. The ap apocalyptic scene of the world here is actually a picture of what happens in miniature in all of us. We become undone. Our abilities, and for some of us, even our faculties, they grow dim. And the reality of the final day closing in on us can fill us with fear. It certainly steals our ambition for life. I'm not sure what the upper age limit is for buying new shoes. But who hasn't known people who refuse to buy new shoes beyond a certain age because, well, I don't think I'll get the good of them. <laughs> the preacher says, live well before these days come. Before, and here's another set of pictures that come to us from verse 6 into verse 7, before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. This is a picture of death. He's saying, live your life well before death comes. And you see, the preacher understands the Bible's message that human beings, they're created with 
an inherent dignity that has been attributed to them by God. We've been made in the image of God, and so there's something, there's something right, isn't there, about how he describes human beings as, as, as being made with this cord of silver, this bowl of gold. There's a, there's a preciousness to these items. But here's the thing, for all of the dignity, for all of the worth that we can find in human beings, life ends in the same way for all of us. We become like broken pots, broken wheels. There's water there to be gathered and carried, but now we are undone. We're unfit for purpose. And famous words in verse 7, the dust returns to the earth as it was. We were made from dust, and to dust we return. And the breath of life that God gives to men and women will return to him. And as the preacher reflects on that, what else can he say? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It's all a vapor. And we see this in ourselves, even if we were to strip back some of that imagery, don't we? The gray hairs advance. You now need glasses not just to see things far away, but to see things close up too. I never can remember what his name is. When your hair goes, when not just your ability to run goes, but even your desire to try, what else could you add on to that list? When you find it hard to spend two days with small children, never mind to spend four or five years with them. You need to know, says the preacher, these are days that will come. And there's another thing you must know. So not only do you need to know that you're only young once, you need to know that everything you do matters. Everything you do matters. And again, the preacher is is challenging how we tend, I think, to naturally think about these things. Think about how the freedom of youthfulness is often perceived. Well, because you're young, there are things you can do now, freedoms that you will never have again, so make the absolute most of it that you can. And then you can worry about getting down to the serious business of life later on. It is widely reported that our king, when he was a young man, had someone come alongside him to speak to him in the kind of way that the preacher in Ecclesiastes does. But he gave him very different advice. Again, it's widely reported. His uncle, Louis Mountbatten, said to him, son, sow your wild oats before settling down into marriage and family. And we get the idea here, right? The idea is that these youthful excesses, they don't count. You know, what else are you going to do with all that pent-up energy and passion that you've got? Let it all out and enjoy yourself, and then eventually settle down 
and get on with the normal business of life. It's as if It's as if these young years are described as an opportunity to detach yourself from the responsibilities and realities of life. It doesn't count. It's a free pass. I was young at the time. The preacher wants us to think very, very differently. Look back at his call to the young in chapter 11 there. He wants them to live with certain priorities. And why? Look at verse 9. For all these things, God will bring you into judgment. He says, young man, remember, you will give an account to God for everything, the good stuff and the bad stuff, for everything. And this reappears in the very last verse of of the book, doesn't it? Did you see that? Verse 14 of chapter 12, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is why, deep down, that description of decay and death is a terrifying thing for human beings. This is why people will cross the other, to the other side of the street rather than, than even engage for a moment in the possibility that death could come. It's so terrifying because the Spirit is returning to God who gave it. That's how the preacher put it. It's terrifying because everything begins and ends with God. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul could hardly have been clearer in Romans 2. He says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. That's exactly what the preacher is saying here. And so it is the case then that there really is no period of your life where the things you do don't count. Everything you do matters. And everything you do will need to be accounted for. And so there is a sense in which probably death should terrify us. If that's what it will mean for me to then stand before God, I mean, which one of us in this room would be thrilled at the prospect of everything you've ever done being on display, every secret thing, whether good or evil? This is the reality, the consistent reality of the Bible's message. You live, you die, And then comes the judgment. And how else could it be? Almighty God, the one who exists in perfect purity, made us so that we might reflect his goodness and purity in this world. And that is not what we have done. It is not what we have done as a collective, as humanity. But let's look a little closer. It's not what you or I have done as individuals. And we stand before God culpable for that failure. And by rights, God should condemn us without hesitation. And yet, and yet, the Bible has more to say. The final word of Ecclesiastes is a word of judgment. The Bible has has more to say about that that God has in fact sent His Son to become one of us, to live the God-honoring life of obedience that we have not lived, even the youthful life of obedience. And this perfect Son of God then gave Himself 
to bear the penalty that our sins deserve. And he endured that penalty as he died on a cross. And so you see that the message of the Christian gospel is actually not one that says, hey, look, God is willing to forget about your sins. Um, Just come to him and do your best. That is not what it's saying. The Bible's message is one that says your sins need to be accounted for. And either your sin has been accounted for by Jesus Christ, or you will give an account for your sin. And this is the great gift that God presents to every one of us here today to come to Jesus, to come to the perfect one who was crucified in the place of sinners like you and me and receive from him the gift of forgiveness, the gift of being right with God. And it's received simply by believing in him. Friends, you need Jesus Christ because everything you do matters. And for sinful human beings like us, that's bad news. But here is the good news. You can have Christ. The preacher says, you're only young once, and everything you do matters. So, this is what he urges, so fear God and live. So fear God and live. Um, I mentioned that there's another voice in addition to the preachers, which appears in the closing section from verse 9 to the end. And you see here that this, this additional voice refers to the preacher. It's almost like he's written an afterword to the book of Ecclesiastes. He, and, and he urges us here, doesn't he, to take in what we've heard in this book. And he understands that the book of Ecclesiastes, for all that it has to say about death, is a book that's primary message is a message about how to live. And it is quite a skill. I don't know if you, if you feel you could do this. It's quite a skill to summarize any book in a sentence, isn't it? I mean, you need to be good at following the argument. You need to be good at ret- retaining the things that you've read. Well, for, for the one who writes this postscript to Ecclesiastes, he manages to do it without any bother at all. Verse 13, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Here's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. All of these 12 chapters can be summed up in that one sentence. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is where that meaning and purpose that the preacher has been searching for is found. Fearing God and doing what God says. It's surely no accident that fearing God is placed first. And I think there is a tendency for us to think that it's a, a slightly outdated way of speaking. I mean, who would, who would ever be attracted to this idea that you should fear God? But I think it's important to say that 
the things that come to our mind when we hear that word fear are not really what the Bible means when it says to fear God. It's not describing having the sort of fear that you might have of, of a terrorist or a wild animal or an abusive parent or husband. No, to fear God is to recognize who God is, that He must dominate the landscape of my life because I realize that all of life from beginning to end has its beginning and end in Him. It's to realize that God is not just another character in your life. He is God over your life and is the reason why you have life at all. It is to orient life to Him. That's what it means to fear God, to live life directed to Him, to have our hearts turned to Him in submissive, reverent worship and obedience. It is to remember your Creator. And the only way we can do that is to turn away from living for self and turn towards Him. And the only way we do that is through the Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's with that fear, that, that reverence of God that leads to relationship with God. And then in that relationship with God, in gratitude to Him, we live for Him. If the message here was to say, here is the whole sum of the thing, keep God's commandments and He'll be pleased with you, that's no good news at all. No good news at all. It says, fear God and keep His commandments. Know God first, because only then can you do what is pleasing to God in keeping His commandments. Know God and in gratitude live for Him. It's really… you may well have, have things that God has pressed on your heart things that uh, you know He would have you do, but just never get round to doing it. This is, this is what it is to live well. It is to know God and to do what you know He wants you to do. So, get baptized. Join the local church. Serve the local church. Share the good news of Jesus with others. Live honestly. Disciple others, especially your own family. And on and on that list could go. And so finally, we go back to, to the preacher's words to the young man in chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, and we see what he's calling him to do. He's saying, what are these commands? He's saying, rejoice in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. And I guess if we were to take those things in isolation, we could say, well, it sounds like the sort of advice that anyone would give to a young person? Isn't he basically just saying, make the most of it? Well, yes, he is saying that. Make the most of your youth because it's soon going to be gone, but it's deeper than that, isn't it? Because it's not in isolation from the rest of the book. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth, walk in the days of your heart. Well, what kind of heart? A heart that knows God. A heart that remembers your Creator. Because when that is in place, then the desires that flow from that heart 
will be honoring to God. Too often, the, the, the Christian church has given the impression that the way you get right with God is by doing stuff. The Bible's message is that the problem with that is our hearts are not right. The heart needs to be changed first. A heart that remembers your Creator, fears the Lord, is a heart from which desires, new desires come, desires to honor God. Um, St. Augustine, who was a, a Christian back in the early 5th century, he once wrote something kind of like this. It's come down to us like this anyway. He said, love God and do whatever you want. Love God and do whatever you want. And he means the same sort of thing as the preacher here. Get your heart right with God. And then do whatever you want. Do it to honor Him. Because if your heart is right with Him, that's what you'll want to do. The, the, the intergenerational nature of this, part, this closing part of Ecclesiastes is so compelling to me. So weighty, I must say. Because the preacher is saying here, this is what you must, whatever you do, pass on to the next generation. They need to know that, yes, there are freedoms and opportunities that are there when they are young that they will likely never have again. But really living life is never about wasting it on yourself. It's using what God has given to honor Him. So, you might never be able to use your summer holidays to go on a mission trip again. You might never have an opportunity after leaving school to do a traineeship in a church again. But more than that, the preacher here wants the young men in Israel to understand from the earliest age that it is more radical and significant to live your life for God than it is to live it for the approval of others. Far more radical to live your life to know God than it is to be known by others. It may be far more radical to invest in a family than to invest in a stellar career. Giving away what you don't need will do your soul far more good than spoiling yourself. Fearing God and doing what honors Him is far more precious than how much money you can have, how big a house you can own, how well thought of you might be, how many followers you can collect, how high up the career ladder you can climb. And the more we think about it, then the more we see this isn't just a message for the youth. I mean, 80% of you have checked out for the last half an hour, haven't you? It's not just for the youth. Because the truth is, you will never again be as young as you are right now. So, says the preacher, fear God and live. This postscript to Ecclesiastes will not let us off the hook. 
He picks up on lots of things that maybe we've felt as we've read through this book. What powerful imagery it uses, what perceptive commentary on the world it has, what remarkable philosophical elegance it has in understanding life. But that's not enough, says these closing words in Ecclesiastes. You see that in verse 10? He says, the preacher sought to find words of delight. And I think we've seen that, haven't we? Words of delight. We could listen to this. And uprightly he wrote words of truth. And friends, this is where we have to come to. We we don't get away with just reading a book like this and being impressed at how it's got more in it than we thought it ever had. Not enough to say how well written and interesting it is. We have to come to the conclusion these are not just elegant words, but words of truth. And when we find words of truth, we must heed them. He says these sorts of words, the words of the wise, verse 11, are like goads. The goad was a sharp stick the farmer would use to keep his animal on track. It's like a nail firmly fixed. This is where you will find security, unmovable bearings for living life. Because we see that actually the whole time this book hasn't just been the preacher's opinion on things. Look at that in verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. These words of wisdom are not simply what man has come up with in his deductings, but these have come to us, in fact, from God, the true shepherd. And what do you do when you hear God's words? Do we say, well, I feel like I understand that now. I'll move on to something else. The writer here says, don't do that. Verse 12, beware of anything beyond these. You will weary your flesh. If we can't come to the truth and first of all accept that, then there's no point moving on, searching for something else. Here we have heard words of delight, but words of truth. And we're being told here, don't move on from here until you have responded to God's truth. So for you today, that might be placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the first time. To actually, for the first time before God, admit that you're a sinner who needs your sins to be dealt with by Jesus Christ. He's provided everything that could be needed for that on the cross. Come to Him in faith. The promise is for you. It may be here today that someone needs to turn again to the cross of Christ. There may be some need to repent of, I don't know, you tell me, of misprioritized living that we've been coming up against more and more here. This failure to realize that everything we do matters. And it may be that we simply have to reconnect with this remarkable truth here. Life is short. It will soon be gone and forgotten. So fear God and live. There you find the meaning of life. And there in the details of your life even, you will find true joy as you seek to honor God with the things he's given you.
Amen.